Well, good morning. Shot. We good? Yeah, there it is. Okay. I heard you say good morning, though, so we won't say it again. This morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, flip over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 50. We'll walk through chapter 24, verse 12. Luke 23, 50, and then to 24, verse 12. This morning, uh, a very familiar story, the story of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our reading for this morning, picking up in verse 50 of chapter 23, and a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and he wrapped it in a linen cloth and he laid him in a tomb cut into a, into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. 24.1 But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which had been prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day rise again and they remembered his words returned from the tomb and reported all the things to the eleven and to all the rest now they were mary magdalene and joanna and mary the mother of james and the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles but these words appeared to them as nonsense they would not believe them but peter got up and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in he saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened let's pray together father god we thank you for This text, we thank you for its central meaning in the Christian faith. We thank you for the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we we pray today that our minds will be lifted up to the beauty and the goodness and the splendor of this truth that Christ Jesus It's not dead, but that he is alive. And that those who are in him by way of faith and repentance, according to the graciousness that you give in your gospel, will participate with him in his resurrection one day. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, again, a very familiar story. It's, um, It's interesting to me, it always has been interesting to me, that even those who are not well acquainted with Christianity are very well acquainted with the beginning and the ending of most gospels. They're very familiar with the stories about the birth of Jesus, very familiar with stories about the resurrection of Jesus might be a little fuzzy on the details in the middle and some of the things that did and didn't happen in Jesus's life and some of the things that he did and didn't say and what those teachings do and don't mean. But most people particularly in a Western context like ours, are fairly familiar with the stories at the beginning and the ending of most Gospels. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus was born and some people came and brought him gifts and some angels sang in the sky. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus died. He died on a cross and they say he came back from the dead. And, you know, people are fairly familiar with the, the essentials of the story. And so the basic details of this story... There was a gentleman by the name of Joseph uh, who was from Arimathea, which should make us pause um, and, and, and to remind ourselves to never judge a book by its cover. He's a member of the council. He's a part of the, essentially, that would be the Sanhedrin. He is one of the members of the council that just wrongfully condemned Jesus, held that farce of a trial took him with false accusations before Pilate to have Jesus crucified. He's a a member of that group. 
Now, it says here in our text that he didn't consent to their plans. He didn't agree with what they were doing, that he was a righteous and good man. It seems, based on the information that we have, that he actually was one of the few from the group of uh, the religious leadership that had come to actually believe that Jesus might actually be the Messiah, might be who he said that he was. He didn't feel like this plan of action was proper and just. Now, that may be a stretch. It could just be that he was a righteous man, as it says in the text, and that this this farce that was going on, this fake trial, this injustice that was happening didn't sit well with him. Maybe he didn't think that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah like he claimed to be. Perhaps not. Maybe he just didn't like the concept of injustice. Maybe as a religious leader who understood the principles of of proper justice in the Old Testament, felt like, well, even if I don't agree with this guy, even if I think he's crazy, and even if I don't think he's really the Messiah, we shouldn't put an innocent man to death just because we don't like what he's saying. So at the minimum, we have that from Joseph of Arimathea, possibly maybe even thinking that Jesus was really the Christ, perhaps. Either way, you should never judge a book by its cover. Occasionally, there are people in high-ranking political positions that are actually good people. This is a hard concept to believe today. It was a hard concept to believe 2,000 years ago. It was a hard concept to believe 2,000 years before that. Uh, There's nothing new under the sun per King Solomon. People have had a severe distrust of people in authority for a long, long time. It's just human condition. It's part of the fall. But... Shockingly, and on a very great rare occasion, you'll actually have someone who is ascended to great political height and power who really is a good person. And we need to understand that that actually can happen. And so we have a case of that here. He was part of the organization that condemned Jesus wrongly. He was on that council. And he goes after and he gets the body of Christ. And he wants to go and bury it which was a great danger to himself and his political position to do so. We need to understand this. This organization just went through all of this great effort to unjustly condemn Jesus, and a member of their own council went to get his body to give him a proper burial. He's going out on a very long limb here to do this. And so Jesus' body is starting to be prepared for burial, but it's not completely prepared for burial. They're running out of time. The Sabbath is about to start. It's late in the evening when Christ, it's toward evening time when Christ is fine, finally dies. They, they're, they're, they're under a time constraint. And so it says that they, they left and they were going to come back after the Sabbath to finish the work. And when the women arrive at the tomb to finish the work of preparing his body, he's not there. But there's angels there. Now, we've had conversations about this, and it's interesting that the story ends essentially the way that it began. Angels making declarations about Jesus. It's important for us to note this. We also need to remind ourselves, because it's been a while since we've engaged angels in Luke's gospel, that they're not your traditional pretty small petite ladies in prom dresses like we hang up on our Christmas tree. Because remember, they fell down on their faces terrified when they saw, and it says here in the text, men, these men, or those who had an appearance of looking like men. All of the descriptions that we have of angels throughout the uh, Old and the New Testament, they, they seem like horribly terrifying creatures. Like, really. Like, overwhelmingly so. Everyone always has the same reaction when they see one. They fall down in terror. Like that's what they do. And so these ladies were no different. They fell down on their faces and they were terrified. And the angels give this wonderful story about Jesus being alive and being risen and being not there. And so the women run off to tell the disciples about it. And of course, the disciples don't believe them. Because contrary to popular objections to Christianity, people in the pre-modern world weren't just wandering around all the time thinking they would see their loved ones the next day. Because not everybody believed that folks were just going to come back from the dead. 
Modernity does not equal suddenly, you know, people are the only ones who could ever think in history. People before, quote unquote, modernity understood that when you died, you usually stayed dead. You shouldn't have an expectation that you might see cousin Bob at the next family get together after he died last week, because you just never know he might come back. You know, like that's not how people thought back then. They were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. In fact, when's the last time you had to have your roof replaced? Probably within the last 10 to 15 years. When's the last time they replaced the pyramids? That would be millennia. As smart as we think we are, uh, they kind of had it together back in the day, if we want to give them a little credit for it. I'm just saying. And so nobody had an expectation that Jesus was coming back from the dead, even though he told them that he would. Say, hey, I'm coming back. This is nonsense. These ladies have shown up. They went to the tomb. They said that some angelic beings told them that Jesus was alive. He wasn't dead anymore. This is just about the craziest thing I think I've ever heard. Like that was the response of the disciples. That was the response of the apostles. And of course, what would your response have been? In the work that I do as a pastor, I've lost track and count of the 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 funerals that I've either done or been to. Because death is regular and normative. Never have I engaged a family member who had an expectation of immediate resurrection. Never. Oh, pastor, you don't have to worry about it. He'll be back in a couple of days. It'll be fine. Like never. And if anybody had ever said something like that, everybody around would have gone, hey, we we need to make sure that, that she's okay. Like she's not okay. We need to call somebody. Like, that's how people would have responded. That's how you would respond. If someone that you care deeply for were to die, you were to bury them. You were to just finish the morning, immediate morning grieving process. And then someone that you knew, who also knew them, who also cared for them, suddenly showed up at your house and said, hey, I went to visit the grave and the grave was open. And there were these people there and they said that they're alive now. You, you, you would think that that person had completely lost it. Completely lost it. This is what the disciples do. They respond to this. But Peter, being Peter, I love Peter. I love everything about Peter. He says, you know, what? we're going to go check this out. So he runs there. Other gospels tell us that John went with him. Um, just for kicks, read John's version of the story. Because he doesn't name himself, but he says the other disciple who went with him ran faster than him and got there first. So John's throwing a little, you know, shade at Peter there. You know, slow poke, come on, catch up. Um, And so they ran and they looked to see. And lo and behold, there's an empty tomb and just linens from the body. So that's the basic details of the story. But this morning, I want us to focus on just a couple of verses out of this to really hone in on the beauty and the splendor of the resurrection. The key focus I want us to have is from chapter 24, verses 5 through 7. The words of the angelic beings to the women who came to the tomb initially. In verse 5, it says, The women were terrified. They bowed their faces to the ground. And these men, that's subbed in, it's these dazzling beings, said, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. So first statement from these angelic beings, this question that he asks the women who come to the tomb. He says, why do you seek the living one? Among the dead. And it's a very interesting way that this is phrased. It's not just the concept of living, not just someone who's generically alive. The way that they word this, the concept of living one, carries with it this notion of life itself. The one who is living. And so he's, the angelic beings are indicating two things here. First, that Jesus is actually physically alive by way of resurrection. That he's not dead. He really is alive. 
But they're also indicating a deep theological truth that Jesus is life itself. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Because, friends, the beauty of it, the theological beauty of it, is that we know that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is everlasting and eternal. And that while the physical person of Jesus really and truly died a human death and really and truly was placed into the grave, Christ Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is forevermore and always alive. He made the promise and the announcement to the thief that we saw in last week's sermon. This day, today, right now, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because the second person of the Trinity is ever-present everywhere. Death cannot overcome him, for he is king over death itself. And so they're teaching a profound theological truth, one that Jesus himself taught in his earthly ministry. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's who I am. I am life itself. Paul makes this even more profound in his writings and his letters where he says, in him what? We live and we breathe and we move and we have our very being. There's no life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ at all. So, second Part of their statement. So why do you seek this living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Now, they're speaking, of course, about the human person of Christ. The divine person of Christ is omnipresent. But the human person of Christ is not to be found in that grave. For the human person of Christ has come back to life. Death could not hold him. He has demonstrated himself powerful even over the grave. Something that no other human being has ever been able to do. What was the declaration of justice to Adam if he were to sin from God? He says, do not eat from this fruit of this tree. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You'll die. Death was the declaration of justice for violating the commands of God. Now, we know that Adam did not physically die that same day. He lived quite a great many years after that. But there was a spiritual death that was immediate for when God came to walk with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. Adam was not to be found. And the scripture teaches us in Isaiah 59 that our sin has created a separation between us and our God, that he has hid his face from us, that he will not see us. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. He knew because he's God where Adam was, but relationally. He was blind to Adam, unable to look upon him because of the sin condition he was now in. For the holiness of God cannot look on the wickedness of man. And at least not without judgment. And so he calls out to Adam, where are you? And Adam has to reveal himself through confession. Ah, I ate that fruit and I realized I was naked and I hid myself because I was ashamed. So no human being since that time has been able to overcome this just pronouncement of God, this this pronouncement of death. We have the story of Enoch being taken by God. We have the story of Elijah being taken by God. But they were not able to overcome death in and of themselves. They had to receive a special grace from God in order to do so. Jesus Christ was the only human being to ever live who in his own power, per his own words, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord and therefore I will lift it back up again. Jesus Christ in his own power as the God man gives life fully to himself. Why? Because he is life. This principle that we're learning here is an extension of the first thing that they said when they asked the question. Why do you look for the living one, the one who is life itself among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Why is he risen? Because death has no power to hold Jesus. He throws off death like you throw off a blanket first thing in the morning, getting up out of the bed. 
And then the angel offers a reminder to them. Remember how he, Jesus, spoke to you. Jesus prophesied all of these things. Why? Because that is why he came. Jesus came for this purpose. It's why he was here. He came to die a death he did not deserve. He came to take our sin in his own body. He came to make a great exchange and sacrifice. This is what he came to do. And so all throughout his ministry, he's announcing pieces of it to them. This is what's going to happen. This is why I'm here. He spoke to them throughout his ministry, all throughout Luke's gospel that we've been walking through. He spoke about his betrayal. He spoke about his death. He spoke about his resurrection. He spoke about all of these things. So what do we glean from this this morning? This morning, I want to spend just a few minutes reminding us of a of a of a of an an incredible truth in the Christian faith that we all know that we all believe that you can't actually be a Christian without adhering to yet all of us if we're honest likely find ourselves profoundly neglecting this truth in our day-to-day lives and it's this the resurrection is the central hope of the Christian life. We say it and everybody nods and they say amen and oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And on a Sunday morning in a worship service. Coming to hear the word preached and to sing God's praises together. Our minds are attuned to thoughts like this. Well of course. Yeah it's why we worship on Sunday instead of on Saturday. It's the quote-unquote Christian Sabbath and the shifting to the first day of the week from the last day of the week because that's the day Jesus was raised from the dead and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have all these things that we just kind of know and that are more, uh, prof- we're more profoundly in tune to when we come into an environment like this. But what about Monday when things aren't going quite so great at the office? Or Tuesday afternoon when that person Post that article on social media that just drives you crazy. Or on Wednesday when you stop in the grocery store. And they didn't have that thing that you needed to make dinner that night. Or we can just keep walking through everybody's regular mundane frustrating weeks. What about on those days? How profoundly in tune are we to the truth, to the fact that the resurrection is the central hope of the Christian life? Consider first, friends, the value of the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? I'm just going to run through some biblical principles. We could take the time to go to all of the verses that shore up and show these things, but we would be here until next Sunday. So you're just going to have to trust me on this one. First, the resurrection proves Jesus to be who he said he was. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. That Christ Jesus has been proven to be the son of God with power by the resurrection. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he was. Which means everything he said about himself is true that he is God in the flesh, God with us, the Emmanuel. He's bread from heaven, that he's the water of life, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the good shepherd, that he's the door to enter into the kingdom, that he's the vine and we're the bread. Everything that he said about himself is true. Why? Because he made one very specific pronouncement. I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to take it back up again. I'm going to demonstrate myself to be all that I say that I am by doing something that no one else has ever been able to do. Overthrow the power of death. And then he overthrew the power of death, thus putting a stamp on everything else about him. 
The resurrection not only proves Jesus to be who he said he was, it also proves to us that there is legitimate, real victory over sin. Christ Jesus came into the world. He lived a flawless, sinless, perfect life. Please don't get your theology from CNN. You should get much from CNN, but really don't get your theology from CNN. If you don't know, John CNN this week said that Jesus admitted that he wasn't perfect. Why anybody wants to listen to that, I don't know, but whatever. He lived in the perfection of God's commands. Flawless life that Adam should have lived and did not. Jesus lived in the midst of the fall. Think of how profound Jesus' perfect life actually was. Adam, who was placed into a perfect environment with all of the advantages to maintain perfection, fell away. Jesus was hurled into an environment of absolute imperfection. There were no advantages toward perfection. Everyone around him, all of the environments around him, everything that people produced, every governing institution, every example that he saw in the lives of other human beings, every lesson that he ever heard taught, every sermon that he ever heard preached, everything ever around Jesus's life was tainted by the imperfections of the fall. And yet he still maintained absolute perfection in the midst of that. That's remarkable. And then he made a great exchange, his perfect life for the imperfection of everyone else. He took our sins, as the scripture said, into his own body. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And he cast down not only death in his resurrection, but also the power of sin that drives us to death through his resurrection. He overcame both of those. So the resurrection shows us that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did what he said he would do, namely overthrow the power of sin. The resurrection also proves to us the truth and the worth of the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of the good news in a very dark, bad news world that namely we are wretched, broken sinners separated from God because of our rebellion. Yet because of what Jesus Christ has done, his death and his resurrection, his power over death and his power over sin, he now offers as a free gift of grace to those who would repent and believe this opportunity to come into his glory and to be as we should have been originally image bearers of God perfect and flaw free why because of anything great in us no but because of all the greatness in him it shores up the glory and the beauty and the splendor of the gospel message of Jesus Christ it also casts down all the powers of darkness Paul tells us I believe it's in Colossians that one of the great works of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that it makes a mockery It puts on public display the powers and the principalities. It mocks them. Satan running around trying to deceive people and devour people and trying to flex this authority that he thinks he has in this broken and fallen world. Trying to oppress people globally by moving their minds away from the truth. And it says that the work that Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead made a public display of the powers and the principalities. He overthrew the very powers of darkness. It's an incredible thing that Jesus has done by coming back from the dead. Now, consider not just the value of the resurrection, but consider the hope that the resurrection supplies. This life is not the end of all things. This life is not the end of all things. David, writing in the Psalms, was bemoaning the injustices that the wicked seem to get away with. There's a lot of Psalms where he does this. And at one point he cries out to God and in essence he says, Why? Are the wicked able to carry on as they do? Why is it that there seems to be no justice for their wrongdoing? God, are you sleeping? God, are you blind to these things that they're doing? Do you not care that they're getting away with this? 
And then midway through the psalm, he changes his tune. And he acknowledges that God's justice is an eternal justice. And that even if justice isn't measured out in this life, this life is not the end. That there is an ultimate justice that will come. Now, I said that this is a hope that the resurrection supplies. That's only a hope if you're in Christ Jesus. If you currently are not in Christ Jesus, if you're living unto yourself and you know all of the wretchedness that hides in your own dark heart that other people may not see because you've concealed it well, then you should hear what I just said, not as a hope, but as a as a great warning. This life is not the end of it all. There is a great day of justice that is coming. And you may say, but. Philip, I. I'm I'm such a wretched person. I'm harsh and I'm cruel and I'm greedy and I'm mean spirited and I'm proud and I'm 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 malicious and I'm harsh. And that's just how I treat my dog. It just gets worse from there. Friend. Be encouraged. If you are in Christ Jesus. There is no measure of wickedness that you have lived in in your life that is greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said it roughly like this when he was having a conversation with someone after one of his preaching services. And the guy basically said to Spurgeon, but you don't know how profound of a sinner I have been. To which Spurgeon in essence replied back, I don't have to because I know how profound of a savior that Jesus is. Friend, the more wretched you are, the more of a prime candidate you are to fall at the feet of Jesus. Justice will not be poured out on you if you receive the forgiveness that comes from justice being poured out on Jesus Christ. That's hopeful for those in this resurrection. Friends, another hopeful thing about this resurrection, this broken world that we live in will one day be made whole again. I don't know if you've noticed or not. But the world's not quite the way that it ought to be. I mean, that's always been true. There's been some things of late that make that a little more profound right now, a little more obvious. But the world is not how it should be. When you think about people in general, and this isn't, Always for everyone. But aspects of this are true at different places and at different times in different people's lives, depending on where they are in their journey. But you just kind of think about people in general. Uh, we'll talk about a work, a work, a basic work week for most people. Most people, to show you what's wrong with our world, we'll use some terminology that has been invented to talk about our work week. Like, for example... People having a case of the Mondays. Only in a broken world that's not right would anyone say that. What does that usually mean? It means I just came off my weekend where I was getting relaxed, getting to do whatever I want to do. And now I'm back to the grindstone. Got to come back in here. Got to clock in. Got to do this work. Got to push this paper. Got whatever it is you do to earn resources. And I'm in here earning these resources so that I can hurry up and get back to the weekend. I don't have to think about it anymore. And I don't have to. That whole mindset that a vast portion of people actually have, not just here, but all over the world. Shows that the world's not how it's supposed to be. Do you know, originally we were made to like find great joy and delight in laboring, like doing of labor. Like that was actually a blessing that God gave. 
Of course, part of the curse was is that now our laboring doesn't always produce what it should produce and it's a whole lot harder for it to do what it's supposed to do. And so we start to kind of hate it because it's not working the way it's supposed to work. And it's a whole lot harder to get stuff done. And the return on our effort is usually a lot lower than we want it to be. Why? Because the world's not how it's supposed to be. You wake up one day and you play ball with your kids. You got one game in you. They've got five. So you know to stop after game one because you don't want to lose games two through five. World's not how it's supposed to be. So, no, Philip, that's just, you know, kids growing. Yeah. But you know what that means when your kids are growing? That means you're shrinking. That's how the world's not supposed to be like that. We were not made for deterioration. We were not made for death. We were not made for retracting away. We were made to perpetually and gloriously image God. Not for our cells to break down at the cellular level and move us ever so so slowly toward death. This is not how this world's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be overwhelmed with sickness. We're not supposed to be overwhelmed with greed and with pride and with hatred and with fear and with tyranny and all kinds of other things. Every governing system that has ever existed in the world has been fatally flawed and has led to all kinds of turmoil, regardless of the circumstance that it finds itself in. Why? Because our world is broken. It's broken. And every time we try to fix our broken world without Jesus Christ, we just break it more. Friends, the resurrection teaches us that there's a hope that the brokenness of this world will actually one day be made whole again. That one day... I will really be able to love people as they are. And they will be able to love me as I am because God will have made us lovely. And there will be no flaws for me to see. And there will be no flaws for me to have. And everything that I do in the world, because friends, there's a, there's a remake. Please get it out of your mind that you're going to be turned into an angel sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Please get rid of that weird Eastern mysticism. That is not Christianity. There's going to be a remaking of the physical world and you will be remade eternally as a physical being because that's what it means to be human. And your world will have nothing wrong with it. I cannot even begin to imagine what that's going to be like. I spent, I don't know how much time yesterday blowing force-filled water all over my back patio to get rid of algae and dirt that within four days in this broken world will be back again for me to be able to do it again in another month. Because I won't do it again in four or five days because I'll remember the awful experience of being out there doing it just four or five days ago. I will need more time then what I have to not do that frustrating exercise of futility of trying to keep the just disgusting and gross stuff that grows in our broken world all over things that I don't want to be disgusting and gross. And you know what? One day the world's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that. I cannot fathom a world where I don't wake up sinning And engaging my sinful self in the lives of other sinful people. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. Finally, the great glory of the resurrection. We've touched on it briefly, but I want to open it up a little bit more before we close this morning. The hope of the resurrection, friend, is that no matter how terrible your past Or how unstable your present. Your future is both secure and sure in Christ because of the promise of the resurrection. I've had a lot of personal conversations with a lot of you 
Some of you have remarkably tame stories and I envy you. Hey, tell me a little bit about how you came to Christ. Well, I was born into a wonderful godly home of parents who've always been married to each other, who loved each other very much and have always been Christians in a church. And they always sang songs with us and told us Bible stories. And when I was five years old and came to an understanding of my wretched condition in Christ, whatever a five-year-old can comprehend wretchedness to be, I called out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And since then, I've just been walking in perpetual uh, progressive holiness with him since then. What a cool story. And then I've had some conversations with some of you. And your story is not anywhere even close to that. It's so vastly different from that, that it's amazing. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of us that fall somewhere in between that. No matter what your past was like. No matter how unstable your current present circumstances may be. The temptations that you face, the health problems that you have, the family dynamics that are going on, whatever it is that's happening with you right now. Your future, if you are in Christ Jesus, is full of surety and security because of the resurrection. And this is where I want to to pry a little bit. I want to, as they used to say in the preaching class, I want to move from preaching to meddling. We all believe this or we wouldn't be Christians. Like this is an essential aspect of Christian doctrine. Belief in the resurrection. To, To disavow belief in the resurrection is to abandon legitimate Christianity. Like you don't have Christianity if you don't have this. A lot of theologians try to figure out what those markers are that you actually, the bare minimum things you actually have to really believe to truly be a classically orthodox Christian in its most basic form. None of them disagree with the resurrection being on that list. If you're curious about what that list is in its shortest form, you have to believe that God is triune. You have to believe in the incarnation of Jesus, that he was the God man. You have to believe that his crucifixion was for sin in some way, that it was an act of sacrifice for sin, that he physically rose from the dead himself and that he promises a future resurrection to those who have trusted him. You have to at least believe those five things if you really want to be a classically orthodox Christian, like at least. Now, some other people add some other things to the list, but you got to at least have those five. Every creed has those five things in it. All of them. So to deny the resurrection is to deny Christianity. So if you're sitting in here this morning and you're a Christian, you already believe everything that I've said. You're kind of like, well, this, well, this is pretty boring now. I already believe that. So I'm going to shift from preaching to meddling. Okay, great. You believe that. When's the last time, apart from a worship service or a funeral that you attended or a great cataclysmic event that happened in your life that was overwhelmingly tragic, have you just stopped and pondered and dwelt on and gloried in the beautiful reality that your hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, for some of you, it may have been in one of your most recent Bible readings. So you might be like, I got you. It was last Tuesday. It was in my Bible reading. Awesome. And when it didn't come up in your last Bible reading, when's the last time independent of tragedy, death or a worship service? Have you personally spent time contemplating the glorious hope of the resurrection? Sad reality for most Christians is not very often. We think about everything else. And that's not that it's bad things to think about. We think about how sovereign God is. We think about how powerful the cross is. Often divorcing the cross from the resurrection, which is a sad thing that we do because the New Testament does not do that, but we do it all the time. We think about how holy God is and we think about his purity. We might even occasionally dabble our fingers in the concept of him being Trinity. We think about the, the graciousness that Jesus showed to other people. We think about some of the do unto others things that it calls for us to do. We contemplate how we can improve our prayer lives. We, we have a whole list of things that we have. And then, of course, we have all of our negatives that we ponder on in the Christian faith, the things that we ought not be about and the things that we ought to stand against. And we spend a great deal of time dealing with the things that we are, should be in opposition to, like homosexuality and sexual sin and abortion and murder and tyranny and all sorts of things like that. And we 
contemplate and spend a lot of time struggling with those, wondering if we can make the world a better place through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And yet, do we daily take time to attend to the fact that the only hope that we have is the fact that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead? Where do we find our immediate peace, our immediate hope, our immediate joy, our immediate comfort? Friend, I will tell you that in the New Testament, everywhere, everywhere that they point you to the things that we long for most, blessing and hope and delight and joy and comfort and peace and unity, they Always, you say, Philip, it's an overstatement. No, it's not. They always tie it back to the resurrection. Always. There is no hope for anything apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. None. But Philip, pondering and dwelling on the resurrection, that... That's not going to help my marriage. Then you don't understand the resurrection. Say what? I mean, how's the resurrection going to help my marriage? Well, let's think about the resurrection for a minute. So Jesus Christ came into the world. He made himself low in the form of an incarnate human. Veiled himself in flesh, became the servant of all, even though he was mistreated by those that he came to serve. They cast down on him, though he was trying to raise them up. He willingly made himself less than he was for the benefit of the other person. And in the process, redeemed all of their misconduct through the glorious gift of self-sacrifice that culminated itself in the hope of the resurrection, longing for the delight of the Father over the accolade of the other. You know, that sounds like a fantastic equation for having an excellent marriage if each person in the marriage would behave that way and find their hope not in the behavioral response of their spouse, but in the delight of the Lord who has promised them a hope in a future one day in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A greater prize to come than the one that they can have right now. And if both of them happen to do that at the same time, you're going to have an incredible marriage. And if only one of you does it at one time, you'll find that your hope isn't wrapped up in how the other person is acting towards you or treating you, but rather the delight that the Lord gives you and the promise of comfort that you'll have one day in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We could do this all day, but the resurrection is where you find all of your hope. All of it. And the problem with all of us, and I notice I said us, I didn't say you, us. The problem with all of us is that we spend so very little of our personal time pondering, dwelling, and thinking on the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we try to plow through the hardest, roughest parts of our day relationally. Financially, health-wise, socially, culturally, all of the different things that come caving in on us day by day. And we try to plow through those things with some sort of generic or vague concept of God, sadly, even as Christians. Well, I know Jesus loves me, or I know Christ died for me, or I know God's sovereign, or he's in control, or whatever other pat phrase that we like to use. And our minds do not go to the one central thing that is given to us in the word of God to go to in every circumstance that would give us the greatest measure of hope. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise that we would be participants in that resurrection one day. And the reason why most Christians live very defeated lives is because we are not living our lives in the victory of the resurrection moment by moment, 
day by day. Because friends, it's an already not yet. It hasn't fully happened to me yet because that happens in the day of glory one day down the road. But I have already been raised up with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. My experience should be from that eternal perspective that in God's economy and from God's eternal viewpoint, I am already seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. That is where I should live my life from. The reason why it is such a comforting hope of things to come is because it is a comforting reality that I fail to live in regularly. I have already been raised up with him to walk in newness of life. I have become a participant in his death that I may also be a participant in his resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says. And so, friends, this morning. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask me the same question that the angels asked the women at the tomb. Why do we seek the living one among the dead? Because friends, when we neglect the resurrection in our lives, that's what we're doing. We're looking for Jesus in a tomb. We're looking for a crucified Jesus. We're not looking for a risen Jesus. We're not looking for an exalted Jesus. We're not looking for a victorious Jesus. Why do we look for the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Cast your eyes to the throne of grace where the risen son daily, moment by moment, makes intercession for you, seated at the right hand of power forever. Cast your eyes there. That is where the living one is. And let all the other cares come under the authority and the power and the dominion of a risen Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the joyous reality of the resurrection. Father, forgive us when we neglect it in our walking and in our lives. Father, I know far too many times the resurrection and the hope that it brings is the last thing to come to my mind to dwell on. Something that has such a preeminent and prominent place in the hope of the believer finds itself tucked in a corner, gathering dust in my spiritual life. And Father, forgive me for that. Father, may our hearts and minds be renewed to a deep, meaningful, day by day contemplation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we are actively participants in that resurrection now and longing to be participants in that resurrection in its fullness at the day of glory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing song of response together this morning.